0: This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil Tooth people. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains
1: high. Seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies. Watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend.
0: To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is May 28th, 2020, and this is episode 191. I'm Scott Lundaboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to talk about pharmaceutical politics with Sasha Maleki, as well as China and quick takes on the rest of BC and Canadian politics. Uh, thanks, as always, to those who help make the show possible. We're up to 101 contributors every week. Thanks, in particular, to our newest patron, Harrison. I was just checking our charts, and we've been growing constantly over the past six months, like really just exploding up over $100 more since then, which has put us into, I think like the $350 range. This means a lot to us. Thank you. For the duration of the crisis, we've opened our Patreon Slack to all our listeners. Visit legandbootmedia.ca. And one additional plug that I don't think we've ever made is that we've been on Spotify for quite a while. And I think the last time i looked this at the stats there it turns out a lot of people don't actually know that so if you listen to podcasts on spotify or know someone who does tell them to find us on spotify and add us because i'm sure if more people follow us it helps us get found by more people
2: yeah and likewise reviews uh, big help itunes all the usual places as well
0: and Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial to have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to, to enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two week trial the newsletter, go to slash free trial. Joining us on Politicoast now to talk about the politics of pharmaceuticals is, I guess, longtime listener Sasha Malecki.
1: Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I. Uh... We we're just saying in the pre-show. Um I listened to you guys when you first appeared on the Dockets. So this is going way back to your very very first episode. So it's really exciting to be here.
0: Sasha, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? What your background is? What is your expertise?
1: Of course. Um so I'm my name's Sasha. I'm a pharmacist by training. Um I went to SFU for part of my undergrad and then I went to UBC for pharmacy school. Um, And then after that, I did a residency in uh, hospital pharmacy practice uh, in Victoria, Um, and I'm now working in NIMO, primarily working in uh, neuropsychiatry, but also in general internal medicine. Um, So you might be wondering, well, what does a pharmacist do in the hospital? We're not just pill pushers. We don't count pills all day. What we're doing is we're essentially making sure that medications are being used correctly, uh, and what that means is that they're being used in the uh, correct scenarios, that they're being, that the ones that are being prescribed are being, um, uh, are the best ones to use and that they're also safe. And uh, yeah, and how I kind of got involved in this whole COVID, uh, I guess, commentary is um, Rob Tarswell in his podcast, Viral Transmissions, he I uh, actually gave a talk to the Island Health staff, um, all medical staff and pharmacy staff about some imaging stuff. And I reached out to him and I gave a talk on his show and I reached out to you guys and thought we could talk about similar stuff. So here we are.
0: So I wanna start off by talking about this news out of Alberta that a test, a trial on the drug hydrochloronic has been abandoned following additional reports that it's just not effective. It's just not working. And their side effects are serious to it. Uh, this follows news last month that the Kenny government would pursue trials, tests, vaccines without waiting for Health Canada to, quote, catch up to the European Medicines Agency or the FDA in the US. Since so much of COVID 19 coverage relies on studies and science, And all of this, could you give a little bit of a background for those who can't keep up or don't have don't remember their high school science about, you know, what is the difference between a trial and what is how does science work, Sasha?
1: Yeah, uh, and I think that's a really important piece to discuss, um, because we can debate the merit of these drugs and the usefulness of them as much as we want. But before we even really understand the perspective of healthcare providers, we have to understand scientific evidence. So I'll just kind of go just dive into that. So essentially, what is scientific evidence? Well, um, to put it simply, we have to be objective in healthcare, we can't really use our feelings, um, because those are going to introduce bias very quickly. And we need a sound and easily reproducible way to approach a case and approach a decision in healthcare. So we rely on evidence to guide our decision-making. The evidence that's out there can vary on a hierarchy. So this hierarchy can be as simple as, uh, uh, what we call expert opinion, which is someone who's been in the area for a while and makes a judgment call, uh, to as, uh, to the highest level and as advanced as what's called a meta, a systematic review with a meta-analysis, and within all those um, classifications of of hierarchy, there's many different kinds of studies out there. Um, what we're seeing primarily in the COVID, uh, like I guess, uh, uh, evidence pool, is that there's a large amount of what's called case reports. And so case reports on the hierarchy, I'd say, are, are uh, probably a, a step or two above expert opinion. Uh, it's essentially just what reporters would do in, in the news. They just report what they saw. Um, they don't necessarily give analysis of where that their case report would fit into the context of the broader health paradigm, It's more just saying, here's what we tried and here's what we did and here's what happened. Um, Usually case reports on one person, if they're on more or if they compile different case reports, we we go into something called case series. Um, Then it would go higher into case controlled studies or case cohort studies. And then it goes higher and higher and higher. Uh, The next thing that you guys would have probably heard of is a randomized control trial. And so... I want to get the definition of that clear. So randomized means that uh, there is a uh, objective, uh, non-biased way of assigning people to two different or three different or four or five, whatever different interventions. Usually, one intervention will be an active drug or an active comparator versus placebo. Placebo can be Uh, a sugar pill, which essentially has no, um, active ingredient or placebo could be in many cases of COVID trials is standard of care, which is, um, what we do for, uh, treating any viral illness, which is rest fluids and supportive oxygen therapy. So where we kind of dive in with hydroxychloroquine, this anti-malarial drug, um, which is used also for rheumatoid arthritis, which is the, primarily where we see it. We don't really use hydroxychloroquine for uh, malaria, not because it's the best option, just we don't use it that often. Uh, where where this comes in is it uh, kind of to, like to explain the idea is you, you have to kind of understand human behavior, which is we want the easy answer. We want the easy pill to fix any problem that we have. And in all of healthcare, essentially, before we go try and find a novel solution for something, we want to go back and try stuff that we have. So we tried stuff that was already out there and that had possible uh, impact on treating these viruses. And hydroxychloroquine was one of them. So Hydroxychloroquine has something called disease modifying properties, which it essentially helps to let your immune system calm down, is the easiest way to explain it. Um, there is also theoretical ideas of its antiviral properties. Um, I don't know too much about the biochemistry behind that. Um, my focus with hydroxychloroquine in my training was more so with what's already been established, but that was their idea was that. It seemed to work for other highly inflammatory-driven processes, and it apparently has an antiviral property. So let's give it a try. Is essentially what I gather is why they went about it.
2: So uh, I'm actually a little curious. What was the rationale for why this particular medicine was the one to try?
1: No, yeah, totally. And 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 you know, there's it, it wasn't just hydroxychloroquine. Uh, there's a lot of drugs that have been tried. I think the number was something around 10 different um, kinds of drugs were tried for for to to uh, to treat COVID-19. And and so this is kind of where I can start diving into the specific evidence of each thing. Um, essentially uh, whenever someone says, "Hey, this works for a drug or or this drug works for for this disease state." As as clinicians, we have to ask ourselves, "Okay, what does that actually mean?" right? What do you mean by work well okay that's where the studies tell you or they should tell you what the outcome is and the outcomes that they use in these hydroxychloroquine studies are just they vary quite a bit some were designed on um what's called a microbiological cure which is where they test people for the uh, virus before they test positive obviously and they get enrolled and then they test them after and they say, okay, you are now cured. That means that your test was negative. Um, that's one way. Another way would just be the uh, duration of hospital stay. Another one could be that they look at uh, specific blood markers. Um, so there's the, the, the difference in the outcomes really vary and the other, the other problem that there is out there is the, the patients that they're testing um, uh, are not all the same. And what that means is the, the demographics are quite different. So, uh, yes, of course, we're not all going to have the same age of people, the same comorbidities and the same, uh, I don't know, like colors of hair and whatever. But really what's more important for the COVID trials is where they are in their disease state. So are they at the very beginning of the disease or are they in the middle or at the end? Because that can really uh, 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 change how you interpret the data. So what I mean by that is if we enroll someone into a trial who is in the middle to to the end of the disease course, which is usually between if we just eyeball it seven to 14 days after they first got symptoms, um, they can be. At the most critical time, but if they're in day ten, day twelve, then in that case, they've actually probably, you know, survived the majority of the course, and so you have to look at where they were in their disease progression. And now, notice how I haven't even talked about hydroxychloroquine yet. It's been about twelve minutes we've been into the show. That's because this is how much context is needed to really explain why everyone is everyone in the healthcare world is so against these drugs because the, the studies are weak just to be flat out. Um, but what they do show is that, there's, it's, that it's very unsafe if they use it in patients who have COVID-19 who are in hospital. Um, this was most recently brought up in a study that was published in the Lancet uh, maybe two weeks ago now. They did a retrospective review, so retrospective means that they looked at uh, charts from the past of 96,000 patients, and you might be thinking, well, what does that mean? 96,000 is a lot. Um, The largest trials that we have to, and and we consider these very, very medically robust trials, are 30,000 patients, so 96,000 is a lot of people. Um, They looked at it uh, of, uh, I think it was like 600 hospitals around the world. And what they found is that there was a significantly increased risk of death associated with people who took hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, or hydroxychloroquine plus an antibiotic called azithromycin um, when they were in hospital. And when you actually look at the risk factors, um, that they also included in their analysis, the risk of you dying while you had COVID and you were taking one of the drugs was also similar to you dying if you were a smoker and had COVID-19 and you were in hospital. And we've regarded or we've uh, we've been kind of hyping smoking as this ma- like major, major risk factor. So it just goes to show how dangerous that this was Um, Then there were the the early reports in Brazil where there was, I think it was like 60 people died from taking hydroxychloroquine in the studies. Um, Yeah, so it was really problematic. And hydroxychloroquine on on the surface is really appealing, especially for a government. Um, It's a once a day drug. It's very inexpensive. Um, I think if you were to purchase it on a bulk basis, it'd be just a couple cents a day. Um, and so it, that's why it was pushed as this big contender. Um, unfortunately, though, it caused these arrhythmias, which had made your heart uh, beat irregularly and put you at risk of getting uh, your heart to stop, which is quite obviously dangerous. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one of the big ones is that the people who get COVID 19 and go to hospital generally tend to have more cardiovascular disease. But also we find that the that the virus in people who get very sick, um, it, it tends to make the heart a bit twitchy. And what I mean by that is it's more prone to getting an arrhythmia in the first place. So that's why we saw this, or those are reasons that, that are suggesting why there were so many deaths to begin with, uh, with this drug.
2: Right. Uh, so what other drugs are being looked at and kind of are there any hopeful ones on the horizon?
1: Yeah, there there is one um, that you may have heard of, and it's especially being pushed in the U.S. Uh, it's called remdesivir, or as Trump pronounced it, remdesivir, which I don't know. I just thought that was funny. But anyway, um, so remdesivir has a bit of an interesting history. During the Ebola epidemic, their uh, remdesivir came out as a potential solution for the the problem, but they found that actually it didn't work, and the harm was quite severe compared to the benefit that it gave for the for the virus. Right now, what's going on is remdesivir is being pushed, and they're trying it to see if it's going to work as a potential option to help treat COVID nineteen. And, uh, Dr. Fauci in the U S or Fauci, I really don't know how to say his last name. I think name. it's Fauci. Fauci. Yeah. That's what I thought.
2: Fauci. It's, uh, I think the C's in Italian are pronounced as C-H's. Yeah.
1: So, so, so let, let, us just call him Dr. F. So Dr. F, <laughs> he had talked about this trial that, uh, the drug company Gilead, who is the, the one who makes this, uh, medication, um, they had been, had, they had tried um, giving it to people who had COVID nineteen and who were in hospital, and the big fanfare that they came out at the end of April was that they stopped the trial early. So, what does that mean medically? Well, that could be for we have to ask ourselves the the important question, which is why did they stop it? So, there's usually two reasons why. One is they either killed too many people or it was way too unsafe or it was actually very effective and they met what's called their preset efficacy endpoint. And so when they meet it ethically, um, you can't justify continuing the study uh, because you've already proved your point essentially. So why would you put more people at risk is essentially the rationale in medical ethics. So, What happened is that in this case, they actually met the the preset efficacy endpoint. Now that's great, but when you look at the data, it's again, it's not, there is no statistical difference. So that means if I were to tell you remdesivir is better than a sugar pill or a sugar IV drug in this case to solve or to treat someone's COVID-19, um, I have to say that because I have a statistical reason to do so in this case of this study, there was no statistical difference for the mortality risk. So uh, it was 8% versus 11% um, for the risk of, uh, 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 I believe it was mortality or was it the uh, reduction in, in stay in hospital? I have to double check that number. Uh, but the point is, is that there is no statistical difference between the two. So what that tells us is, okay, well, you know, we don't know really if, if we can, uh, use the drug because if there's no difference between essentially chance, then why would we want to put someone on a drug that is just being used with chance, if that makes sense. Um, the other thing that to consider is politically. Well, what's the reason for them pushing this and really trying to make this the next big thing? Ultimately, it comes down to money is a big one and patents. So, uh, remdesivir is exclusively owned by Gilead. Um, Gilead. Uh, what that means is that they're the ones who can make it and only them. Um, but the other thing too is that it's we have to remember that this drug is actually not approved for use anywhere in the world outside of a clinical trial. So what that means is that um, we can't just order it from uh, some drug supply company like McKesson. Uh, You have to access it through what's called compassionate access. And that's directly through the manufacturer. Now, the thing is, is that they, the company Gilead decides who gets the drug. So, why that's a problem is for this study, we don't know who is getting the drug. The the, the study hasn't even been published. They just told us that this is the report from the data. So that's problem number one. Problem two is that, are they cherry picking patients who are getting this drug? And so that actually seems to have happened with an earlier study that they reported. Um, This is at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so now a similar thing is happening. And ultimately, uh, if it, just thinking about the current political climate of the US with an election coming up, um, having this drug be the winner, so to speak, in, in the sweepstakes of finding the first drug to cure the disease, which it doesn't, um, uh, it, it would be a huge boost to to Trump's, uh, campaign because he can easily say, yeah, I found the drug that saved people. So that's kind of where this drug is coming from. But medically speaking, it's, we don't know if it even works. Um, and I have to be very careful in saying, you know, it does or it doesn't work because we just don't have the trial published yet. So we still need to wait and, unfortunately, it's kind of hard to wait because this pandemic is ongoing and people are dying. So it's challenging.
2: Uh, So that actually brings up uh, something I'd like to pivot to that's related to this is for very good reasons. uh, Again, approval for drugs is difficult. It's quite medically or needs to meet a very high scientific bar. And the medical profession is quite uh, risk averse uh, as it should be. But In a situation like this, when there are a lot of people dying every day, um, how does the profession approach that where there's uh, very real trade-offs to even a day's delay in getting approvals?
1: Yeah, so that's – well, as frontline healthcare providers, there's only so much that we can legally do. Uh, So when it comes to medical liability, if – um, if we have, so I, I have to kind of explain how, how decision making is made, but uh, essentially we have guidelines for for how things should be done. The guideline in inherently in the name is a suggestion, but the suggestion is backed by, some, by hopefully some very good evidence. Um, right now, no reasonable guideline is recommending the use of these medications because some of them are unsafe, not to mention we just don't have enough evidence. Uh, information to say that the potential benefit is better than the risk that the drug brings on. So that's th- that, that's the first thing. Um, but if there is no guideline, as in the case for uh, COVID, like there isn't really uh, a very robust guideline like there is for cardiology diseases like uh, heart attacks and all that, um, we kind of have to rely on the strength of the trials and making decisions as health authorities, um, as uh, collective um, infectious disease groups, as just a a, a cohort of people, really. And so those decisions are being made. Uh, I'm definitely not making those decisions. There are way smarter people than me doing that. Um, but right,
2: yeah, I'm kind of, I guess, looking for a a high level view rather than kind of the direct uh, clinician's view. But it's interesting nonetheless.
1: Yeah, and I mean the the high level view ultimately comes down, uh, as I understand it, is there are these processes in place in, in Canada for for drugs to get approved for certain uses. Um, so there are many drugs out there that are not approved by Health Canada for use, but we can use them as off label. Um, and that off-label use is kind of essentially up to the prescriber. But for Health Canada to give a stamp of approval, there needs to be a lot of research put in. So you need what's called a phase one trial, a phase two trial, phase three, and then has to go through something called CADTH, which is the Canadian Association of Drug Technologies and Health. And then uh, there's a couple other checks us to go through. And then finally, Health Canada can say, here you go. In the U.S., they're, they have a, a fast-track process, which is that they're, they're essentially cutting that what can be a 10-year process sometimes down to a few months, which now you might think, well, hold on, what are they cutting out, right? And so Canada's process, I don't know too much about it, to be honest, of how they're expediting things. But if I were to speculate, I think they would want to make sure that the safety data is robust, And then the efficacy is really you're just going to have to guess uh, when you're when you're when you're fast tracking a drug. But ultimately, safety is the biggest thing that these agencies would be looking for. So, yeah. So so then, just to go back to that point I said about remdesivir, the 8 percent versus 11.6. So um, it was in regards to the survival benefit, which is a mortality rate of 8 percent in the group of people who are getting remdesivir versus 11.6 percent for the placebo group however that was not uh, statistically significant because its p-value was not uh less than 0.05 so just wanted to make sure that was on the record
2: okay yeah no appreciate that uh so let's kind of pivot over to some i think general policy uh questions so uh earlier today uh dr bonnie henry during her normal press conference talked about um wanted to decriminalize drugs uh, and expand uh, the Safe Supply program. Do you kind of touch on what's involved in Safe Supply and uh, how that's uh, gone about?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think this is a really, really important thing to talk about. So uh, COVID has highlighted a lot of important things in, in, our, in our healthcare system. But we also can't forget that there's a lot of other disease states that are going on. As a matter of fact, we still have another public health emergency, which is uh, that of the overdose deaths, uh, not just in the downtown Eastside, but everywhere in BC. Um, So what she's talking about is in regards to this uh, uh, larger conversation of trying to prevent further deaths and further criminalization from the use of uh, recreational substances. So um, actually, when I was doing the research for this topic, there was an article published by the same journalist. Uh, uh, her name, her last name is Wu from Globe and Mail. Last year in April, where Bonnie Henry went up there uh, and, and gave a press conference about potentially decriminalizing drugs. And almost a year later, uh, 13 months later, almost to the day, actually, it was published last year on April 29th. Um, they talked about how again we need to have this conversation and I couldn't agree more Um, the reason being is that uh, right now and what's been happening as I've as I've heard from from colleagues who are in the substance use uh, treatment world is that when COVID was happening there was a shortage of uh, recreational drug supply partly due to the borders being closed but Uh, There were other reasons which I didn't quite understand. Um, So that led to a lot of problems, uh, especially in the downtown east side, unfortunately. So this conversation about decriminalizing is really also a conversation about harm reduction. for those of you who don't know, harm reduction is a set of approaches that are taken to help mitigate the risk associated with using substances. So, uh, what that could be could be as simple as education. Uh, so that means on uh, how to recognize an overdose, um, how to use a drug safely, what to look for when you're when you're buying your your your, your drugs. Uh, that could also the harm reduction conversation can also go to naloxone. So. We talked about, or not? We, you guys, have talked about in the lock zone before, but um, and, and not to mention society has been dealing with this for so long now. Uh, but also, then then there's the bigger things like safe injection sites, um, uh, which are hugely helpful to to preventing uh, not only uh, overdose but helping to to safely deal with an overdose, um, in addition to also preventing the risk of of transmittable diseases like HIV and hepatitis C. Um, So it's really important that this still continues, especially in the case of COVID, where uh, a lot of the societal supports are difficult to get to now. And not to mention, if you have HIV or if you have hepatitis C and you're on an immunosuppressive therapy, uh, you're at risk of getting this virus. And so it's very dangerous. And, and, and we need to make sure that the supports are in place for, for these folks. So the approach is still to use harm reduction strategies. And this kind of comes to this whole discussion of safe supply. So, what safe supply is, is, um, is a way, is a harm reduction strategy of essentially substituting the illicit drugs that are being used on the street. Um, for a medical equivalent. What I mean by that is, uh, so instead of using what you might call heroin on the street, we don't know what's in there. We don't know the many impurities that are probably in there. We can either give patients something called opiate agonist therapy, which is uh, a couple different versions of things like methadone or Cadian, which is uh, long release morphine, or uh, suboxone is another option, um, or there are other uh, places in the world that are doing injectable hydromorphone, which is where they uh, give hydromorphone, which is a similar potency to uh, to diacetylmorphine, which is heroin, um, and they and they give uh, that to people instead. So, so there's many different ways of, of approaching this. Um, then there's the other drug, uh, uh illicit drugs out there, like, uh, crack cocaine, which we're trying to su- substitute with, uh, stimulants like dexedrine. Um, the, the troubling one though is benzos. Uh, so on the street, there's people are, are saying that they're using something called zanies or Xanax, but we have no idea if it's actually Xanax, which is Alprazolam. Um, there, there, there could be a, uh, an actual diverted supply out there we don't know but it also could be just be a you know uh, like a smorgasbord of stuff that they mashed mash together and put into a pill we have no idea so that's a lot harder to treat because we have to slowly titrate people up on a real benzodiazepine um, yeah but essentially that's the idea of safe supply is that that's where that's coming from um, politically there is also discussion about uh, using the powers of the provincial health office to, um, to essentially divert the ability of the law enforcement um, to combat these uh, offenses. So one way is by telling police officers, hey, instead of arresting these people and putting, putting them in jail, let's refer them to a mental health treatment instead. Um, the next step beyond that would be, as I understand it, would be to actually limit the ability of the law enforcement agencies to use the funds that they have in actually prosecuting and investigating people who've who've used drugs or who are selling drugs and you know and we're talking like you know very low level amounts obviously if you're trafficking a bunch of drugs that's that's completely different um right so with this
2: be something that uh, the public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, would forward, or is this something that has to come from the Solicitor General? I, what's the process?
1: Yeah, so as to actually get that as going? I understand it, it, it's actually from Dr. Bonnie Henry's power. Um, but there, but there was an interview that Mike Farnworth was was up there with her, I think, and they talked. And this is before COVID, and and they talked about. Or I think Mike Farmer said something about that's not going to happen. So I don't really know whose jurisdiction this this is, um, it'll probably get contested in the courts.
2: Yeah. And uh, the the health officer does, basically is, I think, fireable by the province if they do step out of line. Although at the moment, um, I can't imagine anything Dr. Bonnie Henry could do that would actually get her fired. She's so popular and well-liked.
1: Exactly. And, and I think that that's kind of one of the opportunistic things of COVID is that it'll really help to push a lot of things that have just been talked about forward. Um, so that's one way that, uh, that this could happen. I would imagine though that the public would really be on her side, um, especially just just how serious that the, that the overdose crisis is um and and the other thing is that I know your next question might be, well how bad is it Sasha <laughs> the the problem is that we don't have data in the past two months that hasn't been reported yet. So um in a sense I got lucky because I can't answer your question but uh, we also have to wait and see it it could be very serious, um, but I'm hoping that it at least was on the same track and if not it got better. I mean, uh, for- From what I'm hearing
2: from around Vancouver, that's not the track it's on. It's actually gotten worse. Oh, no. During COVID. Um, But likewise, I I don't have any data on that. And so unfortunately, one of those things that's taken a hit during COVID is the data collection on this.
1: Yeah. And and that's something that uh, we just... uh, I really hope it hasn't gotten that bad. But unfortunately, this is something that maybe this will push us as... uh, as a province and as people to move forward with these things. Um, What, uh, what has happened at least is that the access to these treatment programs has gotten much better. Uh, So uh, the pharmacists, for example, are actually allowed to deliver these medications like methadone and suboxone and, and all that to patients now and that's huge. Before we weren't allowed to, and you might be thinking, "Well, why?" The reason is
2: people had taken a clinical setting, right?
1: They, exactly, they can self-administer. Yes. Yeah. So, so the reason for that is because the, based on the, the the federal health act, it says that the controlled substances, if you were to move them in a car, it's considered trafficking. And you know that when you think about that, like, yeah, I guess it is trafficking. But I mean, that's not at all the intent, but. Um, the, uh, the larger point being is that, yes, they had to take these drugs by physically coming into either methadone clinic or to a doctor's clinic or to a pharmacy where they have to do what's called a daily witness ingestion at some point when the physician and pharmacist feel comfortable, then they can move on to, uh, what's called weekly carries. And then eventually they can uh, take the drug at home whenever they want, which is what we want them to get to. Um, so, so yeah, that, that those restrictions are being eased, which is really good. Um, and yeah, and, and I just want to add one thing, um, uh, if I can, the one thing is just more of a social thing that, that this overdose crisis does not just affect the downtown East side. I I really want to get that clear. The downtown East side is disproportionately affected, but the rest of the province is not doing great with this either a lot of the overdose cases, actually the ones that result in fatalities are the ones that are at, um, it's people who overdose at home alone. And so we need to, uh, follow the advice of, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, as well as the Vancouver coastal health officers by which they have said that, uh, don't use alone use with other people. And I know that goes against the idea of a physical distancing, but they've explicitly said in this case, it doesn't. So, um, just be aware uh, that's out there. But anyway, sorry, I just had to say that last point.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, appreciate it. So before I
1: let you go, is there anything we didn't touch on that uh wanted to briefly discuss? I think the important thing is that we have to understand that the, the, the processes that are in place to make sure these drugs are safe, uh, yes, they take a while, but they're there to protect us. Um, and I know that it must be frustrating that you can't take a pill. Uh, but what I can say is that the vaccine trials are underway. There seems to be some promise. We have to really wait and see with that, but that's all I can say is we have to wait and see Patience is key here. Just make sure to stay home, stay safe, wash your fricking hands and yeah, just, uh, keep, keep on going. We're doing really well as a province. Uh, very, very well, actually. So, don't don't think that your efforts as people are are being undermined. Like it's it's helping out a lot.
2: Yeah, the the, the numbers are definitely trending in the right direction here in VC. Yeah. Uh, well, Sasha, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, do, do you have any social media you'd like to share? Or
1: uh, no, I, I I but I will leave uh, my contact info for you guys to put in the in the sh- in the show notes. So if anyone has questions, I'm happy to answer them.
2: Okay, excellent. Well, greatly appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, guys.
2: Well, starting so off for quick takes, uh, I think the big news out of Vancouver this week was there was a court decision related to the Main Wanzhou. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, extradition hearings that have been ongoing for a while. Uh, so as you may remember, She is the chief financial officer of Huawei and was arrested at the Vancouver International Airport back in December 2018. Seems like a really long time ago. These things go slowly. Um, But we got a ruling in this that granted the judicial approval for it to proceed. And now the extradition is moving on to the attorney general and minister for justice to... Approve.
0: Although I'm not clear if she has the ability to appeal this, I think she could. I believe
2: it is appealable.
0: So that could drag it out further. Specifically, this was around double criminality, which as
2: far as I
0: understand, is the idea she can't be charged for the same crime in multiple jurisdictions.
2: So from what I was reading in the coverage of this, the central argument that her legal team put forward was basically... This wouldn't have been a crime in Canada. So, what she's accused of doing is Huawei was doing business with Iran, which is in violations of US sanctions. And, you know, they're a Chinese based company. They can do what they want as long as it complies with Chinese law. But she's alleged to have falsified statements to American banks who do have to follow American laws when it comes to sanctions on Iran. And as a result, that's allegedly fraud. And that's what she's being charged with in the States. Now, their argument was the Iranian sanctions, that's an American law. That's not something Canada is partaking in. So this isn't a crime in Canada. You you can't extradite on this. And the court basically ruled, no, fraud's fraud in all countries. And we're not going to stop the extradition on that account.
0: And this comes into a little bit of extra focus as the Globe and Mail is talking this week about how we still haven't come to a decision on whether to allow Huawei to build 5G uh, technology in Canada, something that a lot of other countries are wavering on looking more skeptical at uh, and instead using other options. Uh, Bell and Telus really want to use Huawei, but a number of the Five Eyes Alliance, for example, are concerned.
2: Yeah, so the, the Five Eyes is a uh, espionage alliance uh, between us, the US, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, we share intelligence information that we gather with all of our, our other partners in it, and that raises particular concerns because that's obviously a prime target for espionage by foreign adversaries, such as the Chinese government. And there's concern that, especially in China, there's very little distinction between companies and the government, and that putting technology that is produced by a Chinese company into critical infrastructure like communications, it opens up Canada to risks, as as well as our allies. And that we potentially risk uh, losing access to information and intelligence gathered by America or other uh, Five Eyes partners that have bond, banned Huawei and don't consider it uh, safe if Canada does have Huawei to uh, share that intelligence with us.
0: Yeah, and there's a new round of protests in Hong Kong and China seems to be moving to end some of the longstanding uh, freedoms in that zone. And so there's additional scrutiny around all of this. And I think we want to dedicate more time to China specifically and hopefully bring a guest on to really help us break uh, that down, hopefully next week.
2: Yeah, we're looking to get that set up. But it's also worth remembering that China is holding two Canadian citizens hostage at the moment. Uh, as a pretty clear and direct retaliation for our arrest of Mait Mwanzhou. Additionally, they've been flexing their muscles in quite a few other ways. Um, There's a whole bunch we can discuss, and we're looking forward to doing that in a future episode. But fundamentally, China is not a good partner and is a potential adversary for us and our allies. And I am just unsure of why Trudeau and the government are not willing to just rule out using Huawei for critical infrastructure.
0: Yeah, it's complicated. I think there's some desire in the federal government to continue that kind of traditional role Canada's played where we're not as black and white as the American or you know, we don't approach foreign policy as black and white as the Americans sometimes do. We would have relations with Cuba when they wouldn't, and in some other situations tried to build bridges with China. You know, it's it's debatable whether it's a good policy or not, but it's where we've been.
2: Well, I mean, that's a bit of historical myth making as well. In that, I mean, Canada's a founding member of NATO. It, it's very, I mean, it's a key player in kind of the the Western and North Atlantic political and military alliances. Like, we're not as you know, a neutral third party, as a lot of Canadians like to pretend we are. And, you know, it's important that we approach geopolitics from a perspective that's realistic about where our interests lie. And it's pretty clear that China's interests and our interests are not aligned on a lot of fronts. And unfortunately, I don't know why this is, but the, the Liberals in particular, going back several prime ministers, have had a, I think, unrealistically optimistic view when it comes to China that hasn't really been borne out. And I think not deciding, you know, right away that we don't want a I don't want to say adversary, but at least potentially hostile country to have a key role in our critical infrastructure. It's a little baffling.
0: Well, moving from one uh, extended quick take to what could potentially be another. And the through line through this is if things turn really bad with China, we'll have to withdraw the military from our long-term care homes in Ontario and send them overseas. That's not going to happen, I hope. But what they have discovered as the Canadian Armed Forces has been deployed in a number of care homes in Ontario is that uh, some of the soldiers have described it as Uh, worse than they've seen elsewhere in the world. Specifically, they use the quote, it's borderline abusive, and if not abusive in some facilities. And there are just a lot of shockingly bad situations in many of these facilities.
2: Yeah, so this was an internal report that was made available. It's part of Operation Laser, which is the Canadian force's response to the pandemic. Uh, And it the letter to the command officer, but within it, there is a couple annexes where it goes into each of the five long-term care homes and the observations from the uh, Canadian Forces members stationed there, and it is quite shocking.
0: So, to get into more of the specifics, there is a lot around flagrant disregards for infection prevention and uh, personal protective equipment measures. I think the most standout one was the reports from a Brampton facility where uh, staff were dancing to a Taylor Swift song between areas that were deemed to be infected with COVID-19 and areas without, and they were doing this without PPE on. I mean, this begs all kinds of questions, like what song were they singing? There's such terrible Taylor Swift songs, like Bad Blood or You Need to Calm Down or Shake It Off, that would all be very inappropriate in this situation. I have to make a joke because this is terrible. Uh, This discussion about cockroaches, flies.
2: Unsanitary conditions and insufficient levels of staffing. Uh, PPE wasn't provided. Uh, or changed appropriately, Uh, contaminated PPE was worn outside of the uh, areas with infected people. Uh, Some uh, residents were not properly isolated when they did uh, have confirmed cases. Rotting food was found in some places. It's just a pretty terrible list all around. Yeah,
0: residents left in soiled diapers crying. One reportedly had not had a bath in over a week. So, you know, these were the worst of the worst care homes in Ontario, you know, these are not acceptable in any way for our own bc perspective horgan and ministry staff have said that no care homes in bc are anywhere near as bad as this they're still working through untangling the staffing uh, mess and uh, subcontracts to make sure there's one each staff member is assigned to one facility but yeah this stuff out of ontario is really shocking Uh, Long-term care homes have been the epicenter of COVID-19 deaths in Canada. Nora Loretto is tracking them in a single spreadsheet because there's no other data source for that. She's basically digging through all of the data from each province every day and updating the sheet. And there are, of all the deaths in Canada, 5,871, as of recording, have been in care homes, 96 of BCs. That's 87% of every person who's died. I think there's a couple like mission prison is in there, but for the most part, it's care homes.
2: Although that's uh, outbreak, the mission prison as- outbreak, I believe was declared over today after two weeks of no confirmed cases.
0: The key flag there is that there's been a crisis in long-term care homes. And while I, you know, I kind of begrudged when it, the reports were first coming out that the military is not the first to raise this alarm. There have been a lot of seniors advocates Uh, activists, people in these families who have brought story after story about how bad this is and how a long-term trend in many provinces from a very not government-run system, but there was a lot more public ownership and involvement in it, to this contracted out kind of passing the buck system where no one's really held responsible. And one of the worst elements of this is that one of the care homes in this uh, Armed Forces report is owned by a federal pension fund. And so it actually is in a way.
2: Well, I believe it's a partial shareholder.
0: Yeah, in a way it is publicly owned then. But it's a chase the dollar thing as opposed to uh, put the care of our seniors first, which is
2: bad. So it is important that uh, public pensions, they, they get invested so that the they earn a return, so you can pay off the pensions. It's an important part of the model here. And at the same time, it is also important that the decision-making process is removed from politics. And obviously, there's a, been a lack of oversight here. Um, but I'm not entirely sure how much shareholders got reported directly on this. And at the same time, like from a – what. You know, what are the policies the government should lay out with regards to its own pension plans? It's not clear ahead of time that don't invest in long-term care homes would have necessarily risen to that level, the way that uh, some pension funds, for example, won't invest in fossil fuels or won't invest in arms uh, companies.
0: And definitely. What was interesting is in the question period today, Jugmeet Singh was questioning Christopher Freeland on this question of care homes and brought up that example, but more broadly. And she actually spoke pretty strongly that all options must be on the table when it comes to how care for elders is provided. I think it's clear to all of us that root and branch reform is necessary. We need to act with speed, but not haste and work with our provincial partners. Uh, They want to look at everything up to ownership structure to put it on the table.
2: I, I feel like it's only a matter of time before the Royal Commission gets called into this. Um, But yeah, before we move on, I just also quickly want to mention that as of the reports I've seen two days ago, which is the most recent I can find, uh, 39 uh, Canadian Forces members who've been working in these long-term care homes have also tested positive uh, for COVID-19.
0: That's unfortunate. Yeah. The other charts that uh, Loretto has in her sheet... Uh, detail the number of long-term care staff who are also contracting COVID. So it's not just, you know, the seniors, it's everyone who has to go into these facilities. And as far as I can tell, it's not, you know, the shiny, most expensive ones. It's the ones where people are cutting corners, where things are being contracted and subcontracted. I think one of the things that was pointed out in BC today about why they're still trying to get those last few care homes to have, uh, assigned staff is because every single staff member who came into that facility was a contractor. And so they didn't have a list of who works there. It could, And if you think about that from a resident's point of view, that means different people are coming into your home every day. It might be a different uh, cleaning staff every week. It might be different cooks. And these are people you... Could develop relationships with if they were assigned permanently and that's somewhat of an incalculable value to having a comfortable life so a lot needs to change even in the good situation here in bc
2: and also like anyone and anyone who's working like any organization knows that only so much of the implicit organizational knowledge and procedures can actually be just written down and transferred which makes it hard to do a lot of the stuff if you're rotating staff in and out every day but let's move on to uh Another announcement out of the federal government this week that they are looking at possibly allowing a 10-day paid sick leave program to come into effect. Uh, so this was a deal reached between the NDP and the Liberals uh, that basically the Liberals got Parliament to operate in the way they'd want that uh, reduces some of the savings and it stands out uh, some of the hybrid Parliament uh, workings that they've been working on so far and the NDP is getting a sick day policy uh, brought forward.
0: Yeah, speaking of areas where it seems like the NDP is actually getting some movement, and at the same time are also things that people really love to rail our provincial jurisdiction. But, you know, when it comes to federalism in Canada, when you have a lot of money to throw around, you'll be surprised what can actually become a federal jurisdiction in a way. So... It's unclear exactly what the policy is going to be laid out. Trudeau has praised Horgan for pushing on this issue, but there's a lot of talk of money being thrown around. So what it sounds like is rather than just encouraging every province to change their labor code, and I guess there is a federal labor code for the few industries that are federal uh, to ensure that there are 10 days paid sick leave. If you are an employer, just as you have to have vacation days and several other benefits by law, It will be sort of an EI type program where the government will throw money to make sure you are paid while you are on leave. Um, My worry is it will be too much in the EI realm, which is very bureaucratic and slow. What we really want
2: there already is a EI sick program as well.
0: Yeah, and it's more for long longer sickness. But yeah, you know, the best case scenario I envision is just—I mean, it's just requiring businesses to pay people when they're sick. But the second best is governments essentially backstopping businesses who then can file for remittance for, you know, my employees were off, I had seven people off sick this month. Can can I get paid for these salary hours? And that's a simple way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I don't necessarily want to say the simplest or the best way to do it is just mandate companies pay for it directly because there are a lot of small businesses that don't necessarily – have the reserves and the ability to cover long extended sick periods. So having a system that allows more resources to be pooled might be better than trying to load on a new uh, cost to a lot of businesses, particularly as a lot of them are struggling right now.
0: I get the struggling right now point. I just think it's 10 days. It's not. It's, in my mind, the same as raising the minimum wage. And, you know, there's always grumblings when we do that, but... I guess we'll find out in the coming weeks and months what this policy will be, but hopefully it comes sooner than later because people need assurance that they can stay home when they're sick, and too many people don't have that.
2: Yeah, and only that. Like, I mean, having new policies is good, but like, th- there does need to be cultural change around this, and that isn't something that can simply be legislated. But uh, we, we've definitely seen that the cultural norm of just Going into work when you're feeling a little under the weather might not be a great one from a public health policy perspective.
0: Well, and another workplace idea that's being bandied about is the idea of a four-day work week, which Green Leadership BC Green Leadership candidate Sonia Furstenau pitched in a Twitter poll, and I guess it's also part of her platform for uh, the leadership of the Green Party, but former Green MLA and former Green Party leader, Andrew Weaver, decided to uh, rail against this publicly on Twitter, calling it a very kooky idea and that we can't just import what works in New Zealand to BC because we are a very different place. He went on in the replies to uh, continue tweeting well after 11, 11.30 p.m. that evening to mention that he was super ready to actually bring down the government over LNG A couple, at some point in the past, he clarified it was early in the term, but that uh, First Now and Adam Olson were more concerned about their re-election bids, which they both later denied. And many people also pointed out that even if all three Greens voted against LNG, the NDP would just get the Liberal votes to br- move it forward. So it was unclear what he was on about there
2: yeah although i I do recall that uh when this the lng thing brought that there were a lot of people raising the question of well kind of what's the point of the green party if they aren't actually going to use the one uh bit of leverage they have over the ndp and something like lng so i i can see why he would be somewhat frustrated that uh his fellow caucus members weren't wanting to go along with that um Nevertheless, not a great look for a outgoing party leader to be slamming his potential successor during the leadership race on social media.
0: I do know, I will speak one little bit in Weaver's defense. I do know he has been going through a lot of personal issues regarding, I believe he has sick family members that he's worried about. And that's part of why he was stepping away from the legislature. So I imagine there's a lot of stress and anxiety on him right now. It's still, you know, part of his role as an elected MLA to, you know, you don't have to maintain decorum, but it's unbecoming <laughs> to, you know, go out like this, attacking your former colleagues.
2: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, though, to see what kind of uh, fractures existed within the Green Party caucus. And uh, yeah, it's been kind of clear that the... um view of what the dream party should be that Weaver has is a lot different than uh, Sonia first now or Adam Olson's.
0: Well, and I guess they may get the chance to hash those differences out in person or by Zoom, whatever they end up using, as it's official that the BC legislature will be returning on June 22nd. And it's not clear how long it'll go for. Uh, but in his press conference, yes, I believe it was yesterday, Premier John Horgan said some members will be here in person some will be beaming in with technology, which I caught as his uh, Star Trek reference squeezed in there but at the end of the day, debate will take place votes will be cast and democracy will be well served.
2: Is it awkward Star Trek reference? Because it really wouldn't be beaming it's more like putting it on the main view screen Star Trek already does video conferencing you don't You don't need to pull the transporter metaphor in
0: Yeah, oh my, he's going to start the first session with on screen
2: I oh God, he is <laughs> It's definitely going to happen.
0: Make it so, Scott.
2: And that has been Playcoast. Find hints to everything we talked about at Playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is beautiful British Columbia by Serge Patnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home.